Welcome to the 1823 podcast from Liverpool John Moores University. Um, we're now a couple of weeks after the COP26 and we're going to be exploring some of the things that came out from COP, some of the, the positives and some of the negatives and really how some of those actions can be taken forward. Hello everyone, so my name is uh, Dr Colin Bow, and I'm Senior Lecturer in Environmental Science at Liverpool John Moores University. Uh, hi, my name is Dr Stephanie Evers. I'm a reader in environmental science at uh, Liverpool John Moores University as well. Um, so Steph, it's been a, a week or so since the, <laughs> the end of COP. Um, I guess the, the, one of the first things that would be good to talk about is really kind of what your feelings are in terms of the outcomes of COP and um, what was achieved and maybe what, 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 you know, what didn't go so well. Um, well, it's a difficult one, really, because I think that it was always going to be a massive challenge, um, bringing together so many different parties, um, uh, getting those mutual agreements. And the fact that we did get some agreements is a massive positive. But I think, you know, there's, you know, to start with the conclusion, we still have a huge amount still to go. Um, so... Um, on a kind of basic level, all the pledges that have been done to date, um, including the new ones that were put forward uh, through COP26, um, have altered the, the kind of trajectory, the climate trajectory from the sort of 2.8 degrees above um, pre-industrial times, uh, which is obviously catastrophic, to uh, 2.4 degrees which is still catastrophic <laughs> so uh, we're still um, facing a, a major kind of crisis and unfortunately COP although it's made some really really good headway um, has not got us anywhere near over the line. Yeah I just wonder what your view is then on the kind of the Glasgow pact that was made um, during, during COP26 I guess that yeah that that commitment or that request for um, countries to come back um, next year in Egypt and, and perhaps make stronger commitments than they've already done so to try and keep that 1.5 degrees um, alive? Um, well, I mean, the Glasgow Pact, at least it formally recognised that we need to reduce our emissions by 45% by 2030 in order to actually sort of achieve our headway. And I think that, you know, an agreement to come back next year as, a, as opposed to 2025 keeps that, you know, elusive 1.5 alive. But at the same time, um, I suppose I'm, I'm going to play bad cop on this particular one. I feel that there was still huge amounts of movement that needed to be made and um, that we, we're starting to kind of... M- make really really positive sounds about the key things that need to be adjusted but we haven't we haven't kind of actually made enough commitments to make them happen and you know cop is not legally binding so you know it needs that real um commitment and it needs that buy-in by everybody and it's very easy to make these pledges and not quite so easy when you've got voters who have certain requirements to keep them so you know I think it's really good that we're going back next year that we're going to keep that pressure on Mm. um but the pessimist in me kind of feels like um it would have been nice to get a bit more kind of solid outcomes um from from this this time round, we're, we're running out of time to to faff about basically so i mean what do you think out of these these kind of key achievements that were gained out of cop and there's yeah. a number of them we can probably go through some of them but what do you feel has been the big one for you that has been the big success um 
so, so I, 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 it's a really good question, and I, I guess there's a few things that I feel like made a step forward, and I, I, th- I feel perhaps slightly more optimistic than you generally um because because I, I look back to where we were sort of 20 years ago when you and I might have qualified as environmental That's scientists yeah. and, and we look at the amount of attention that was placed on um climate change and you know well, and global yes. global agree, agreements and, and yeah and it just feels like that that spotlight is is now there and perhaps you know even two or three years ago we wouldn't be sat here doing a podcast like this within the university um and the kind of level of media attention that was on cop it means that i feel like there is some momentum so so broadly i guess i feel like i'm i'm slightly more optimistic than you i think i think a lot of the you know the drive from young people and from um from others kind of really kind of highlighting the the the, the importance of climate change has kind of garnered extra attention from politicians at both the local level and at the national level. And, and I think hopefully what we see over the kind of preceding years is people do come back and make those stronger commitments. So I, I guess, yeah, kind of on that overall aspect, I do feel kind of slightly more, um, yeah, optimistic perhaps than, 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 um, than some, um, I guess in terms of some of those those kind of announcements that were made, then you know an interesting one that that might relate to both of the work we're doing is is some of the missed promises that were were, were around um, climate finance, mm-hmm. and 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 how um, some of those commitments weren't made. So I think it was a, the commitment for 100 billion by um, 2020. I think that was missed, um, and and there've kind of been some renewed commitments around 2025. So so I guess I just wonder how you know. How, what your views are on that and maybe how it relates to some of the work you're doing in, in the tropics and, and elsewhere. Yeah, well, I think that the climate financing kind of issue is a real difficult one because until we sort of start, well, there's multiple levels to the climate financing. One, that we need to start paying for adaptation to 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 mitigate against the kind of uh, changes in climate. So, you know, countries need to be better prepared. They need to have better disaster management, etc. Uh, you know, assuming that we are going to have these climate disasters. There's also the kind of element of, you know, green financing in terms of, you know, technology transfer, technology development and uptake, um, you know, alternative energy production, that kind of thing that all needs to be paid for. And a lot of these developing countries, they just don't have the finances to, fundamentally overhaul their kind of infrastructural systems but you know I think you know from my perspective um, there's also there's also the last point that you know um, there's this kind of uh, loss and damage funding that wasn't addressed at all I think that's a real problem you know I think there's a lot of countries that are experiencing huge amounts of uh, problems from environmental disasters and there's no scope for them to get any whether you could call it um you know uh payments for those those damage any sort of as it were insurance mm. claims um for the impact made by frankly mostly developing or developed sorry countries and so you know m- my feeling is that you know without that sort of equality should we say or at least a a feeling that everybody's in it together and that as a global kind of community we're addressing this problem rather than country by country finances and country by country commitments you know uh, the pessimistic one is coming (laughs) at me again I guess but you know so I think that's a real shame that there wasn't anything kind of clear-cut that came out of that um 
And certainly from my perspective, working in Southeast Asia, a lot of people that I've talked to have said, you know, look, we we really want to make those changes, but without, you know, a, a massive financial investment, you know, we're just not in a position to do it necessarily. Um, but also, you know, from my perspective, um, there needs to be a real strong shift towards... Um, uh, looking at alternative, you know, land management that, um, you know, that is carbon financed, as it were. So um, I work a lot on oil palm plantations on peatlands. That's my area of research is looking at the the tropical peatlands and, and how they um, shift with land use change from massive carbon, massively important carbon sinks to um, really, really significant carbon sources, you know, methane, CO2, nitrous oxide to the atmosphere. But you can't expect local farmers to, um, you know, give up a reliable um, and, you know, good income stream um, of growing, you know, a, a crop um, on these uh, lands and, and just ex- sort of expect them to, you know, think about the environment. So there needs to be payment schemes. Um, they need to be kind of international payment schemes. But critically, the money that in- comes from the international community needs to be siphoned to the people that are actually involved in the uh, land management and, and not um, necessarily to the kind of maybe the well the wider government or you know we need to kind of think kind of quite carefully about where that money goes for it to effectively change the mindset and the practices of people on the ground who can affect that change so from my perspective climate financing is absolutely critical I'm I'm really from my perspective one of the things that I saw as a big positive was that there seemed to be a shift from just the UN sort of effectively pushing this dialogue to much more in the way of multilateral and bilateral Mm. agreements between countries, a lot more uptake in terms of the private sector. So I was really encouraged to kind of see that, you know, there'd be massive movements in the kind of global financing market so that it was shifting more towards, um, you know, sort of green finance, green projects. I think that's a really, really positive one. And you're talking trillions and trillions of pounds Mm. um, or dollars of, uh, you know, that will no longer be siphoned off towards you know coal on oil and now be put into kind of green projects or green financing so you know from my perspective almost moving away from the kind of uh, you know strict un position has allowed some you know some interesting developments that i I think will support a lot of really interesting and really really important projects moving forward so that's that's great and i I can perhaps mirror that from a from a uk perspective some of the work that that i've been doing so i'm I'm currently seconded something called um nature north so that's a, a collaboration of sort of environmental organizations that sit in the north of england um and essentially trying to look at driving green growth and climate resilience through um nature recovery and one of the things we've been looking at developing within that is something we're calling like the investable propositions mm. so, so so these are basically trying to identify the opportunity for you know op- for investment financial investment at scale across the north of england and, and we can look at some examples of that starting to happen already so you can look at things like the great north bog 
um, which is a large project to restore essentially all the upland peat in the north of England, um, or the Northern Forest, which is a project to, to, pl to plant trees from um, essentially um, Merseyside across to the Humber, so ac across a large stretch of the, the north of England. Uh, and what, what we're trying to do in Nature North is we're working alongside those projects as well, but essentially identify new um, investable prop propositions, for, for example, around coasts and estuaries, and a big part of that will be restoration of salt marshes, for example, um, around greening um, infrastructure, so looking at roads, Road infrastructure and um, energy infrastructure, part of which will come from um, the growth of renewable energies, and how we can link that to things like local nature recovery strategies and, and nature, you know, nature networks, um, networks of natural habitats, and kind of um, both mean there's better connection of habitats across the landscape, but also the, that those that infrastructure like the roads and the rail have better resilience to, to climate change as well because of you know increased heats and, and, and better protection from, from from flooding as well. And and and, and in all those investable propositions, um, that climate finance element is, is really important. And 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 as you say, it's it's we're utilizing something we're calling blended finance. So that's basically looking at how the private sector can invest in this alongside public and kind of um, charitable funds and, and and using that to kind of get more bang for your buck, if you like, Be you know, because as you say, the private sector has got a key role in all of this, but they've also got, a, you know, climate climate change is a big risk to lots of businesses and, and organisations as well around flooding, around um, growing crops and, and how that impacts on supply chains. And so and so there's a real role, I think, to, to align with both the, the private sector and the public sector to start addressing these. And, and I think that's why, you know, some of the commitments that are made on a global scale in terms of climate finance are really important at, at, at COP. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I totally agree. I mean, our sites that we're working on on the... Uh, you know, northern lowland peats, sort of around Lancashire, well, you know, sort of Lancashire um, area, um, and over towards Manchester. You know, similarly, a lot of them are de depending on you know private investment for you know development of projects or rehabilitation of sites. I mean, I, I think you know from my perspective, the, the only concern that I have is this kind of push towards the private sector potentially kind of using this financing financing sort of structure towards offsetting, which is. Um, a really important tool that we can use in terms of gaining um, you know net carbon zero mm -hmm. as, a, as a country is important to think about you know that perspective but I I would have concerns that you know certain organizations are definitely going to use offsetting as a way to essentially avoid their responsibility to cut down their own emissions in the first place yeah. you know so i think we really need to be kind of careful that you know some of these projects don't necessarily result in like for like replacements for one but also that it it means that they they don't need to make the progress um or put the energy or money into actually reducing their emissions as a kind of gross product yeah. of of their own industry you know we've been seeing some really really sort of fantastic funding opportunities coming through for really important projects but at the same time you think yeah but that shouldn't stop you um from sorting out your you know, making your own company or your own industry greener from day one, you know. So I think we kind of need a little bit of kind of careful monitoring as to how this financing is is used and, and undertaken. So, so so I think governance is, you're absolutely right, and I think governance is going to be really, um, really important in all of this and how, how we govern um, these sorts of financial mechanisms um, and kind of the legislation that comes in around those. So, you know, in the UK, we recently had the Environment Bill come in, which is, is meant to be setting some environmental standards. So, you know, having, hopefully that will work and then having kind of 
things like that that set these kind of high standards everywhere will be really important. I think I think also the mitigation hierarchy is, is of course really key. So of course you need to um, avoid and and um, you know do with those other elements before 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 you start to start to um, offset. I, I guess it, it may be that in some sectors, and we, and we of course need to look at this very carefully, that the, the pathway to net zero is, is more complex and more difficult and will take time for infrastructure to establish around those. And, and of course, massive investment should be made into those. Um, but perhaps in, in those cases, there may be an opportunity to do some offsetting earlier on, which then can fund other elements of the net zero agenda, for example, like nature restoration. Mm. And it's, it's driving you know additional funding into those. And I guess things like green bonds and, and loans, you know, can, can, can we arrange, can we, can we organise loans that might come from government or elsewhere um, mm. to, to, you know, and have, have people um, take those loans but pay those back in interest because you are generating a benefit from, from doing this work. So you're not only sequestering carbon. So, so for example, with the, the peatlands, because we've been talking about that a bit, um, by restoring those peatlands, you're not only... Um, sequestering carbon but you're also reducing the risk of flooding um you're also improving water quality yeah. and that has cost savings elsewhere and therefore you can start to then liquidate the finance to move around to start to then fund fund these things so it's a, so so i agree we have to be very careful with offsetting and 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 we have to do it in the right way but but i also feel that it, it can play a bit of a role the other element of that i think is really important is the whole green jobs element mm. um and so as we transition from a, a you know carbon-based economy to a, a hopefully a, a much greener economy that's driven in other ways then 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 you know the jobs that are generated from that are really really important and, and I think I think you know you know we're sat here in the north of England that's been a very you know post-industrial landscape and and, and it's, it's really important therefore you know and is in, man, in many parts of the world is is to, to transition people who've maybe been working in very carbon heavy industries and transition yeah, yeah, those yeah. In, into into green jobs elsewhere that are also you know related to, to engineering and technology or um, mapping or, or GIS so there's a whole series of kind of skills that you know are transferable computer programming that are totally transfer you know transferable um, into the into these green jobs so I think that that green transition is important. I think you've already highlighted it in the tropics as well. That being really key in terms of those farmers having to make a livelihood, disconnecting the economics from the, the from the from the carbon-based fuels and, and the carbon-based economy. I mean, I have to say, from a from a perspective of being a, a lecturer in environmental science, I find that that at the moment is so exciting for our prospective students and our our current students that you know they're entering into their degrees at a moment where there's just such a dynamic change. There's there's so many um, developments. There's so many opportunities that they're going to be moving into um you know and you know i mean it's it's kind of like a conflict really because the worse the environment gets the more opportunities there are but at the same time you know this as you say this kind of really positive transition and trying to look at it from the positive you know this positive transition in terms of the way that all industries and businesses now need to consider their environmental credentials. They need to uh, think about their impacts. They need to think about kind of the smart development of their, their company from an environmental perspective. It just drives this complete mind shift, you know, and, you know, our students, you know, doing the various degrees in wildlife conservation and climate change science, geography, etc., are all going to be at the forefront of having this skill set, which you know is going to make such a meaningful difference so from my perspective it's such a nice opportunity to be teaching students that are going to be on the forefront of you know a green revolution to call it nothing mm -hmm. else but yeah, you yeah. know and so that's quite nice because you know effectively what we're teaching them is just so relevant every day so that's that's really nice um and 
you know, I think that is where the optimism lies and, you know, seeing all these kind of, you know, young people protesting everywhere and, you know, sort of marching along and feeling like the old one in the group, frankly, you know, I sort of thought this is a brilliant, you know, this is, you know, as you say, so different to where we were, you know, a decade or 20 years ago where, you know, I remember my grandmother saying, you know, what is it again that you do and why would somebody want to do this? <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. to the mindset and the, you know, general knowledge on the subject has really increased so we're not fighting you know i'd say one key thing out of this this cop 26 and the glasgow climate pact and all this kind of thing is that no point was anybody debating that we have a problem and nobody was ever debating that we didn't need to cut it down to 1.5 degrees above post-industrial sort of you know levels and so we're no longer having those arguments and to me that's one of the big kind of wins you know because if we were still having to have the argument then we've got a long way to go so we've kind of made that um from my own personal perspective i'm I'm so excited about these pledges towards cutting deforestation i think that's going to be if they can keep with it that's going to be such a big win um because as you said before it's not just the sort of carbon impacts but also the water catchments the biodiversity all of the other kind of ecosystem services that are derived from maintaining these forests intact system. And from my own personal perspective, a lot of the forests that have been earmarked for protection are also really, really important in terms of being tropical peat swamp forests. Mm. So you've kind of got a double whammy because obviously these systems um, store far more carbon than all the rainforests put together. So, you know, to, to start kind of protecting these, um, I think is going to, you know, really kind of push forward our objectives and just fills me with some level of hope that, you know, we are seeing a shift in, in the tide. Um, I just wish that we had seen a little bit more of a shift in the tide, <laughs> I guess. And I guess li- a link to that as well is the, the, the methane commitment, which is probably largely coming from land use and, and agriculture as well. So, so, so methane is probably the, the kind of less famous cousin of carbon dioxide. Um, but as climate scientists, that uh, you and I are, Steph, are, you know, environmental scientists, we, we think about methane all the time because yeah. actually it's a, a more potent greenhouse gas um, than, than carbon dioxide is and, and agriculture um, that both you and I have worked mm. on to some extent is, is a major um, yeah. contributor to that so I, I think a 30% reduction is, is really quite significant um, in terms of, of, of that, that kind of um, that commitment that a number of countries have made to, to reduce that and, and that will then impact on land use and how we, we, we manage landscapes including peatlands which are emissions of carbon as well but also our agricultural land and and and, and, and you know livestock production mm, and things yeah, as well yeah um so I, yeah totally agree and i think also it's a it's kind of an it's important win on in the you know in the right right direction because it is such a a potent gas um it's similar with nitrous oxide and you know a lot of what i'm dealing with is you know trying to you know develop guidelines to reduce the you know over usage of nitrogen based fertilizers because mm. effectively they go straight up into the atmosphere and so you know nitrous oxide is you know nearly 300 times more potent than co2 so if you can start kind of addressing all of these elements together then you you're on to a, a winning outcome and obviously if you only use what you need then you're reducing the the spending that you're doing on excess um and so you know i think there's more and more of a kind of uh, 
an idea of how we can interlink all of these problems together and you know sort of come up with co-solutions to a lot of things that yes the knock-on effect is we improve the environment we improve the climate change situation but to my mind most of the agreements have had you know additional sort of benefits to a whole load of other kind of natural resources and system functions so you know I'm quite um, excited about you know some of these commitments um but i think the pressure needs to be kept on i think people need to keep applying pressure to their their you know uh their own sort of local politicians the government as a whole and you know and vote with their feet otherwise it'll just be a sort of two-week you know flash in a pan and i th- I, th- I guess that's my concern you know there's a big build-up to it and we need to keep that momentum. And I'm not quite sure how the best way of doing that is going to be. Yeah, so I think you're absolutely right. We, we need to keep the, the attention on climate change. And, and I'm, I'm hoping, you know, like we've seen that momentum build, haven't we, in the last 20 years? And I'm hoping it won't go away. And the UK is president of COP for um, for the next year. And I think the UK has got a real, real key role to play in that over the, the next year. And, you know, I was pleased to see there was yet another announcement this morning around plug-in um, on you know for electric cars on um, in new new buildings as well mm. um I, I guess the other place we're, we're seeing this momentum I guess is both locally um across the city region and in the in the Liverpool John Moores as an institution um in itself so it's one of the other things um I do is I um am part of something called the local nature partnership which is a group of um kind of conservation organizations that sit across across Liverpool and the, and the city and the city region uh, and within that I, I, I kind of lead a group that is particularly focused on um, natural capital so that this is some of these nature-based solutions that we've been talking about so how nature can play a role in um, not only miti- helping us mitigate so sequester carbon and store carbon but also to to ad- adapt and, and mitig- um, yeah to adapt to, to climate change as well and, and give us greater climate change um, resilience and, and one thing I've really seen um, I guess over the last couple of years is the kind of, you know, it's, it's it's still not perfect, but there is real energy being put in, you know, across local authorities and combined authorities um, across across the region, both in Liverpool and you know in other places like Cheshire and and, and Manchester as well, um, and and you can kind of really see you know, you can kind of see that shift in action. So so you know you. you now, there's an increasing resource in those organisations around you know experts around climate change and. Um, you know, nature and the role nature can play in that. Um, but but also in terms of, yeah, the focus and the priorities. And, and, and one thing that's great about climate change and some of these nature-based solutions that we've been talking about is they sit across so many other other sectors. So, that, so you know, we talked about green jobs, that we've, we've talked a little bit about um, water management and flood regulation, but also sits across health. Yeah, yeah, and, absolutely. And one thing in Liverpool, we've got a massive um, health productivity issue you know health issue and health inequality but that also then feeds on onto productivity and also I guess in terms of um COVID and the effects that had on our, our city centres and how green spaces and nature can suddenly no, became really yeah, really important it, to everybody yeah, yeah exactly. absolutely and, and also will continue to draw people into the city centres and things as well um you yeah. know be, be, because maybe I'm, people are shopping and living and, and spending working differently in the towns in towns and cities and ha- helping to draw them back in yeah I mean I think it's certainly you know all in combination or Almost, you know, with with COVID all happening at the same time as COP26, you know, my feeling is there's been a massive mindset change in terms of where our priorities are for for kind of natural, you know, open green spaces, um, and you know, having access to them, um, and you know, that links into 
you know a whole load of other positives like things like developing your um, public transport networks you know being able to get out to them very easily and cheaply you know all of that needs to be a continual kind of push and you know I mean one good thing that I feel is that you know by investing in these kind of in a green momentum should we say I think we're investing in a whole load of other positives, you know, for our own kind of health, well-being, you know, long-term financial stability and, and, and sustainability, as well as obviously improving the climate, you know. So, you know, it, it, it feels like, you know, if we can just let go, I guess, of some of our you know, sort of previous relied on technologies and industries and ways of thinking um that that we will see a real kind of positive net gain you know in the longer term it's just letting go of that kind of inertia of what we kind of had before you know so um it is quite exciting at the moment um it'd be nice to see you know have a little time machine and see forward (laughs) where we end up um i just hope i guess that it happens fast enough to avert the the biggest problems because ultimately you know, it's, it's not well let's hope it's not going to be you and I really that are going to see the worst of this it's going to be people in you know developing nations who are already suffering from you know um, drought floods you know landslides all the rest of it those are the ones that you know sea level rise disappearing islands all of that kind of thing and the horrendous fires that we've been seeing and in the UK for that matter you know those are the things that you know um those are the people that are going to get impacted but also you know from my perspective from a researcher i see a lot of knock-on effects you know so the the warmer it gets um uh the less the ocean can you know can store uh the excess carbon um the more fires you get and therefore more co2 into the atmosphere you know the tundra peatlands are melting which means that they're unlocking all that methane into the atmosphere so there's all these little kind of tipping points and i'm not sure kind of you know how how aware everybody is uh, or how precarious our situation is it isn't linear our relationship between greenhouse gases and um and climate change there's all these little ticking points you know tipping points that put us over the edge and suddenly you know the momentum is out of control and i think that's the thing that kind of worries me is that we're so close to so many of those little tipping points that mean that you know for the best intention you know we may not be able to control the situation down the line anyway yeah you know yeah and i I guess that's why you know some of the things that were maybe not as positive out of that came out of cop in terms of the the struggles that went on around coal and 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 the the language around phasing out of coal um to phasing down yeah absolutely uh, phasing down and 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 and, you know the, the, the speed of that transition from um you know fossil based fuels to um, to, to renewable energy and, and how quickly that can happen, and and and, and, and as you say, um, it's how that links to what you and I study in terms of natural processes and yeah. and, and, and and you know, 
it, 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 you know, things that there's more CO2 and, and greenhouse gases continue to be released into the, the atmosphere. That, that then creates these positive feedback yeah, effects absolutely. that you've been talking about. Yeah. And, um, I mean, that, that is the real concern, isn't it, that we hit, hit a tipping point. And, and I guess as climate scientists, we understand that, understand that reasonably well, but actually, we, you know, the reality of how best. quickly things are going to suddenly yeah, yeah. shift, I think no one's, no. you know, totally sure. And, yeah. you know, so, um, you know, it is a real worry and, you know, it would, you know, I think it would be, you know, it's really important that scientists at this stage, you know, that we, we focus in on trying to ensure that as much as possible our research is, is out there and that we are, you know, having... Um, you know conversations with the right people at the right time it's not just you know sort of scientific publications that you know are never seen and you know so effective communication but also you know trying to um, have effective pathways of getting your your outputs out to the people that can actually make those changes I think is really important and I hope that that's something that you know is developed more and more by you know the the current you know government and you know leaders within the community because I think that's a key kind of key thing is this link between you know the the scientists the you know and you know the the development of new policies you know because I think at the moment you know it, it has been quite difficult for a long time to be able to you know connect those two dots you know and really kind of affect any change from a researcher perspective you kind of get a bit stuck in your own little area yeah so, so I, I couldn't agree um, more with that I, th- I think as academics so, so, so as the university as a whole, but but us as academics have a have a real role to support those decision makers and policy makers in terms of providing them some of the answers. Although as scientists, we haven't said you know we've got you know, quite a few of those answers already, but continuing to innovate to identify those new answers and also to provide the evidence that, yeah. that that's needed. And you know, you you were highlighting earlier how. Um, you be, some of the figures that, that you and, and some of the people you work with had established in terms of the 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 the, the, the values in terms of emissions from 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 palm oil on on peat in certain places. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, we've been working a lot on the greenhouse gas emissions from from different land uses across Southeast Asia and sort of determining that effectively there's a lot of shortfalls in what is being, you know, reported versus, you know, what's the reality of the emissions. And I think you know from a you know from a first base perspective what is really needed is is to make sure that your numbers are right because only without you know without having that kind of correct baseline it's important impossible to kind of make decisions on how to prioritize but also in making kind of meaningful predictions about what needs to be done to achieve your goals um, and how close we are to various kind of cutoff lines so I think you know we you know there is a lot more that needs to kind of keep coming in from the academic side and the research side um, to feed in evidence to show what works, what doesn't work, um, and you know how we can move forward in a in a positive direction. So I think that is a kind of key role of the the kind of university and research sector to continue to kind of provide that that information and 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 data. Um, yeah, and in a way, we you know bring it back locally again. We um, I and some of the people I work with, you know, some of my team have been, have been doing similar sort of things for Liverpool City region. So we've been trying to create that evidence uh, and evidence base around 
um, nature and the benefits that that can provide for the Liverpool City region. And that's now uh, you know, hopefully going on to inform the climate action plan in the in the Liverpool City region and um, planning around something called the spatial development strategy that mm. perhaps if you're not a kind of planning geek, you might not have heard of, but essentially influences all the kind of planning that happens across the, 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 the Liverpool City region. Um, I guess the other thing that's been really good that we've seen recently as well is, the, is, the, is what the university's been doing around establishing a, a climate panel um, and looking at its own um, emissions yeah. and green credentials, green credentials and procurement, and you know, and it's always been done to some extent, but I, 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 you know, it's really you know starting to be done um, quite significantly at a university level with kind of really high backing across the university and and, yeah. and and the creation of this climate panel to kind of look at the different elements, whether that be campus management, whether that be procurement, whether that be. Um, the commuting and transport yeah, active travel and, yeah, and transport. Yeah. So I, I think that's been really positive, and we've really seen some some you know positive outcomes start to, to come out. Yeah, from that. I mean, I think what it shows is that you know at every level, you know, and scale, we need to be thinking about these kind of actions and solutions. It's not possible just to kind of say, right, off you go, governments, and go and do and solve this problem. You know, I think that a lot of it needs to come from that level, to be honest, to make any meaningful change. But I think you know that the individual organisation organizations and individuals as a whole need to make those responsible decisions so we're kind of at this this kind of shift in mindset as we said at the start really that is very positive but um it it does require kind of a sustained energy and a sustained focus uh, from everybody involved and i'm excited to see that the university is making some steps forward i think there's a lot that um, can and should be done um and you know I think we're in a you know positive position to be making those changes and those steps, um, and I look forward to seeing how the campus can be kind of improved with with kind of greening with um, you know changes to uh, to some of the management. You know, I think this is all positive actions which you know will will mean that you know as staff we can be prouder of where we work, but also you know it helps in decision making day to day you know because you know some of those those decisions are made easier because there are more sustainable options available to us um so you know it's always difficult if you know you've got barriers and i think there's at the moment there's still too many barriers you know in every aspect of our lives to to having kind of green choices mm. and so the more those barriers are removed by you know governments organizations companies the more we can make these kind of smarter choices as individuals and these greener choices as individuals so i think it's kind of it everything's moving in a in a positive direction but the the pessimist in me you know to kind of you know from my kind of conclusion shall we say is i do feel that there was a little bit of an element that glasgow kicked the can down the road as opposed to actually made a definitive you know uh, was a landmark change you know I, th- I still feel there's a bit of a you know let's let's try harder again next year then yeah. um, and I would have liked to have seen a bit more you know we'll we'll get this sorted this year so, so, so I, I think that's probably probably right I, I will stay slightly more on the, on the optimistic side of things because that's because I, I think we, we do have momentum now and, and and as I said from you know where we were 20 years ago when you and I qualified as you know got our degrees as undergraduate degrees as environmental scientists to to, to where we are now the, the level of press coverage 
around COP was you know far more than I've ever seen. Mm. I, I you know I've I've typically lectured on kind of deforestation at this time of year, and I always used to have a little slide on COP at the end. And and and, and in the past, I'm not sure how many of the students really knew what it was, but hopefully you know yeah. these days there'll be a, mu- a much wider um, awareness of that. And and I agree that much more needs to be done. And we've got a long way to go, and we don't have much time to 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 to, to do that. But 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 I think I think you know, COP was a step along the journey, and we need to make that journey quickly. But but I, I yeah, there were some some progressive steps made, and and you're right, it would be nice to see more. But but let's see what happens when we come, you know, when the world comes back again in Egypt, and ho- and hopefully that momentum yeah. will, will well, continue. It, we'll have to do this again in ten years' time <laughs> yeah. and see which of us was right. <laughs>